You're listening to the Voice of Dog. This is Rob McWolf, your fellow traveler, and today's story is the first of two parts of Victor Tremblay in Paper Blood by Pascal Farfull, who is a writer, fursuiter, musician, and railway photographer. You can find more of his stories on his Her Affinity page. Please enjoy Victor Tremblay in Paper Blood by Pascal Farfull, part one of two. Bang. I awoke. The room was dark. Moonlight bled through the window blinds, casting shadows throughout the bedroom. The phone rang on the table next to me, and I could feel my partner, Charles, stirring. Picking up the phone, I was met with the voice of Justin Walker, CEO of North Am Airways. Budget airliner running out of Seattle, to and from locations in Washington, Nevada, Arizona, and California. Hello, Victor. Sorry to wake you, he said. We've just had a plane explode mid-flight north of Portland. Need you to come and take a look at it. I sighed, looking at the cold digits on the digital clock at the bedside table. 4.22 a.m. I'll meet you at your head offices, shall I? I said. Yes, as soon as possible, he replied. I stagged to my feet. Cost extra out of regular hours. Cost is worth it. Justice waits for no one. Understood. Set up a meeting. I'll be with your receptionist in a few hours, I said. You don't need directions? I wouldn't be much of a detective if I couldn't look up an address. He agreed, and I hung up the phone. I washed. Then returned to the bedroom to get into my suit, sun beginning to dribble over the hilltops. I felt Charles's arms wrapped around my shoulders. Be careful, he whispered, pressing his nose to my cheek. I promise, I said, leaning my head back to give him a kiss, then making my way out to the car. Morning, lean, Reese said, climbing into the car. A wolverine, big guy, small eyes, built like a battle tank. My assistant. Solving crime alone is like booking your own funeral. He was dressed in a large red and white varsity jacket, jeans, and a t-shirt. Good morning, I said, waiting for him to strap in, then driving off toward the North Am building. Reese lived in Seattle, which made our case right in his backyard. Mr. Walker's in quite the hurry, he grumbled, toothpaste still smeared on his lips. Apparently so, I said turning onto the street, bearing the offices of Northam. Large office block, 1960s architecture, lazy brutalist. Nested squares, tiny windows, chipping paint. The forecourt was slowly beginning to fill with news crews, but it wasn't bustling just yet. Reese remained quiet, more quiet than normal. I parked the car and undid my belts, looking over at him as I prepared to leave the vehicle. You okay? I asked. He nodded. I'm fine, he said, in a way that heavily implied the opposite. Leaving the car, I reached into my suit pocket, pulling out a small microphone and clipping it to my shirt, snug under the collar on the left side. I hid the wire down my shirt to a cassette recorder in my jacket pocket. Small click of a heavy button, and I was ready to document the occasion. 
I had a notepad and a pen, as did Reese, but nothing convicted like irrefutable evidence. We walked up the steps into the reception. Mr. Walker was waiting for us. A raccoon, slender physique, pale blue striped shirt, pressed, spotlessly clean. Ah, Victor Tremblay, thank you for coming, he said, holding out a paw to me that I took and shook. I noted that Reese held out his hand and was ignored. Please, gentlemen, join me upstairs where it's more suited to discussion, Mr. Walker said, turning and leading us across the smart foyer towards an elevator. The trip up to the conference room was silent. He didn't speak, and neither did I. Out of the elevator, a high floor, we walked down the brown corridor to a large room. This conference room contained a big oval table. View of the city and the blooming sun on the right. Little models of various airplanes on the left. It's a rich abode indeed. Take a seat, Mr. Walker instructed. We complied. Reese took out his notebook immediately, me following. He sheepishly went to put his away, but I rested a hand on the book to stop him. Why he was so hesitant, I didn't know, but that could be dealt with later. Tell me what happened to the aircraft, I said. It was Flight 44, took off from Seattle bound for Tucson, and crashed just north of Portland near the Lewis River, the raccoon said, sitting down. What do we know of the cause? From initial reports, there was a detonation aboard, and the plane plummeted into the ground, he explained. Do we have the black box? They're recovering it now. I nodded. Let me know when it comes in. Absolutely, he said. How do you know it's an explosion? Reese asked. The fragments they've recovered show excessive burns. Which fragments? I asked. He gulped. The, the bodies, Mr. Tremblay. I stared into his eyes, then over at Reese, then back out the window. They've recovered the bodies and are waiting on the box, the Wolverine clarified. Correct. Any other information you have at this point? I asked. Yes, he said. I've got the manifest and the names of everyone on the flight, as well as a couple people of interest you may want to pursue, he said, sliding a few documents across the table. Top document was details on the aircraft in question, a small Boeing craft. Second one down was the manifest, detailing all cargo on board. The third was the passenger listing, giving a full list of everyone on board. The rest were files on individuals' interests. I began to look over the first one. Jack Anderson, one of our employees, the raccoon said. We've had a tough time with Jack. Doesn't seem happy with the changes to his roles, hours, and so forth. Standard of work became sloppy. We suggested that if he didn't buck his ideas up, that he wouldn't be keeping the job much longer. He's got a bee in his bonnet, and he checked the plane over before it departed Seattle, he said. Our prime suspect in many respects, he's... Ben turned over to the feds. I suggest you start with him. Noted, I said, glancing over the remaining suspects I'd been offered. Gathered the documents together neatly. I looked to Reese. He nodded. All right, we'll get to work, I said. Do keep in touch and inform us when the black box arrives. You seem troubled, I said to Reese as we climbed into the car and I turned off the cassette recorder. 
He sighed and nodded. There's a lot of dead folk on that craft. Before that, I said, you seemed troubled from the moment you got in the car this morning. Reese gulped and sighed as I started the engine and proceeded toward the office. I don't feel like I contribute anything to our cases, he said. He had a habit for speaking blunt as a brick. Those were quality I valued like solid gold. What makes you say that? He seemed to mull it over. I could hear him starting sentences, not finishing them. You're the smart one. You got a cassette recorder in your pocket, you ask all the clever questions, he said. I only ask the dumb ones. I parked outside our office block. If nobody asked the dumb questions, I said, then we'd still be banging rocks together. Jack Anderson, flight engineer from North Am Airways for the best part of eight years. Reese began, reading from a large pile of documents he'd assembled. He used to fly inside the planes, though as he used to fly inside the planes, though as microcontrollers in jumbo jets have gotten more advanced, his duties have become an on-the-ground-only role. This seems to correlate with increased dissatisfaction with his work, he said. He was recently threatened with termination of employment by North Ham, something it is noted that he took poorly. That's a possible motive. He hates his employer, he's about to lose his job, probably has a lot of bills to pay, and it feels hard done by. I said, any significant fiscal oddities in his file? Nothing, Reese said, though that doesn't mean he doesn't have a few fiscal oddities in the pipeline. I nodded, bringing a coffee to the table and sitting down. Who else do we have? Bruce Edgar, Reese said, a wanted criminal who made it aboard the plane we believe on a faked ID. Do you think he smuggled anything aboard? Possibly. You'll have a tough time asking him. His last known location was in a body bag. I grumbled, taking a sip of coffee. Hard one to rule out definitively, I ponder. What's the presumed scenario? Presumption is that Bruce got on the plane, tried to hijack it, or otherwise got in a scuffle. Either a bullet was fired or something else happened, caused it to explode, tumbling to the ground, Reese explained. How about we started with Mr. Anderson, since he's still breathing the same air we are, he suggested. I nodded. Perfect. Gives the salvage team more time to look into the airplane and find any extra pieces of Mr. Edgar. Inside the station, we were taken to a small room where Mr. Anderson was being held. It was a fox, slender build, wearing his overalls. They were grubby. He had hate in his eyes. who seemed acutely aware of both myself and Reese entering the room. He was alert, on edge. Hello, Mr. Anderson. Detective Victor Tremblay and Detective Reese Jones, I said, sitting down, Reese next to me. We're here to ask some questions. Sure, but let me ask one first, Jack said. Go for it, I said, shrugging. No reason to object. You hired by Northam? He asked. Yes, he groaned. So much for impartiality. I raised an eyebrow. Do you distrust me? He grunted. I distrust North Ham, he said. Why's that? Overworked, underpaid, they ignore everything we say. 
Maintenance times and budgets are cut back over and over again, which given how much cocaine is being smuggled on those flights is ridiculous. Cocaine? We asked together. Yeah, those planes are full of drugs, animal skins, you name it, coming in and out from all over the place, Jack said, leaning back in the chair. I reported them all to my superiors. But since I don't trust them not to shred them, he added, reaching into a pocket and handing over a folded document. I handed them this report three months ago. My superior signed it, stamped it. It's been seen, and it's in the system with a log file. I took it, looked over it, handed it back. He wasn't going to let me keep it. I saw his eyes stare unflinchingly at it the entire time, paw outstretched to receive its return. What do you know about Flight 44? I asked. Runs from Seattle to Tucson, he said. I did the check over before boarding. Checked everything I was given time to. Including over a dozen pallets I was told I wasn't allowed to interfere with, but that was normal for Northam. I just figured they were full of drugs, not full of explosions. I nodded. Your problems with Northam, what have you proposed to do about them? I filed a lawsuit a month ago. We have a lawyer and we're going to court in June. Who's your lawyer? Maria Campbell, I can give you her information in the case reference, he explained. With Maria Campbell's information in hand, we got back in the car and headed back to our office. What do you think of Jack? Reese asked on the way. Really hinges on this lawsuit. I'll look into it. You see if you can find the location of the next suspect on the list, I said. Back at the office, Reese looked through the documents as I made inquiries of the local courts about the case reference I was given and laterly spoke with Maria, who confirmed what Mr. Anderson had told us. Case seems to be real, and though I'm no legal expert, it seems Jake has a good chance of winning it. If that document about the drugs he'd passed on to his superiors is fake, then he wouldn't have minded me keeping it. Wouldn't have made good evidence, because they'd probably be able to spot a forgery, I explained. I sat down at the table where Reese was sifting through paperwork. If he's got a court date with the company that wronged him and he's got a good chance of winning it, why would he blow up a jet plane belonging to them, heavily jeopardizing his case? Reese appended. Exactly. I don't think he did it. It's not in his interest to, I suggested. As for Mr. Edgar, I'm not sure he'd have brought drugs along only to attack the plane. Strange for someone to try to go down with their haul. For that matter, to accompany it on its journey. Surely you'd want to be as far away from it as possible in case it gets caught. Reese nodded. Unless he needed it to be taken elsewhere. Filling a plane with drugs and then hijacking it to get it to where you want it feels like more work than is strictly necessary. If he was trying to fly cocaine and poach skins out to Japan, Australia, Belgium, Brazil, surely you'd just load them onto the plane going there and have someone on the other end unload. You expect competency? I expect logic. Especially for someone capable of faking ID convincing you enough to get aboard the flight, I stated. That being said, the black box would hold the key on that one. You'd be able to hear it if he burst into the cockpit or any other struggle. But I'd argue that if he attempted something, he wouldn't have put the drugs there if there are any. Reese nodded. I think the next best idea is to look through what stuff they've found from the craft so far. Sounds good, I said, getting to my feet again. 
We'd been provided the location of the crash site. The plume of smoke was still visible and vivid, fluttering up into the sky. We parked up on a back road not far from the Lewis River, northeast of Portland, and met up with some of the investigators. We were taken to a nearby hangar where the evidence had been moved to, passing an ID check to enter. People in white coveralls were regularly walking in and depositing things carefully onto the floor, in cases of large, metal chunks of craft, or onto tables in terms of documents, cargo, other non-aeronautical objects. I didn't take much interest in the large chunks of airplane they'd recovered. Trusted them to know what different types of damage meant for the fate of the craft. That was far from my area of expertise. Some things showed signs of being buckled and bent, some things charred, Something's relatively unscathed by comparison. They'd know what this meant in terms of plotting out last moments. I just believed what they told me. What was immediately of note was that a rather large amount of identifiable stuff had been salvaged. I didn't bother to look at the bodies I intended to eat later this week. The first thing I went to examine were the IDs. There was a small stack of them on one of the tables. With a deep, disquieted breath, I picked them up and started to look through. Comparing the names of the manifest, I quickly came across a driving license belonging to Butch Williams. The photograph matched the face of Bruce Edgar. I had a hunch it was him. It was charred in many places, but it was intact. Further scans, the others didn't look too critical yet, though they may have uses in evidence later. I twirled it in my fingers a moment, then put it in my pocket. A further scout of the table revealed a large, rather heavily damaged container. Scorch marks covered the mangled panels of the exterior, and shrapnel was dug into the polystyrene inner container within. Pulling on some gloves, I eased the container open, taking each panel, placing it down neatly, to disturb it as little as possible, making a note of how it went back together. I was now at the polystyrene itself. Some of it had deformed enough for further access. A modestly sized loose segment was removed, and I was able to access what lay inside on top, it was cookery powder, stored in multiple small packets. Each packet had its contents labeled on it. The top few were flour. A few further down were baking soda. Before I pulled out another bag labeled nose candy. A formal test would be required, but the label wasn't exactly subtle. I collected the evidence that I felt worth examining. Bruce's driver's license, the nose candy and associated bags, and Reese took some photographs of the box cases and collected some statements from the investigation team. The team were informed and shown what I had taken away, and we returned to the office, dropping off the substances of the laboratory for inspection along the way. I sat down and gave the driver's license a more thorough examination. Up close, the fake was more clear. The font was wrong. It had a general cheapness to it on a purely tactile front. Most damning, of course, is the picture of Mr. Edgar on his actual ID, per the records we had, matched the photograph perfectly on the driver's license. A definite fake. So in conclusion, we've got someone with a criminal record flying on a fake ID, evidence of an explosion aboard the craft, and I do believe a fair amount of cocaine, I said. Motive? Reese probed. Not sure. Potentially a deal went bad somewhere and somebody wanted to recoup lost costs, I said. A trap disguised as a test of faith, perhaps. That being said, why would a cartel throw away a perfectly good amount of product and cause a national incident just to get rid of someone they didn't like? There are much more subtle ways to do it. The Wolverine nodded. 
So if the voice recorder shows signs of Bruce entering the cabin, I'd suggest a hijacking gone bad. If there's no signs of that, I'd wager it's more likely that he and the drugs are unconnected. Two different jobs happening at once. An attempted murder or suicide of a criminal kingpin and a drug run by an unrelated client? I smiled. Astute suggestion. I concur entirely. Though I think killing him in a mass public plane crash would be overkill. If it was a murder, I think it would be a quiet headshot in a controlled environment. Too much to go wrong, too many variables, too high concept. Occam's razor. I'd err on a murder-suicide on his behalf if it were not a cockpit intrusion. You wouldn't have any leads who know anyone in the drug or crime world who might know more about Mr. Edgar or drug flights in and out of Seattle, would you? No, I lied. At this point, I was interrupted by the phone. Picking it up, I was informed that the cockpit voice recorder was ready for me to listen to. I thanked them, placed the phone back on the hook, then relayed the information to Reese. He didn't want to do this, neither did I, but it had to be done, and it was going to be done. You check into the lab. I'll go listen to this tape, I instructed, standing up. Reese thanked me silently, and I made my way out to the car in the offices of the Department of Aviation. On sight, I sat down in the room with the reel-to-reel machine, notepad out. I took a deep breath, and they began the tape. This was the first of two parts of Victor Tremblay in Paper Blood by Pascal Farfel. Read for you by Rob McWolf, Werewolf Hitchhiker. Tune in next time to find out how Victor and Reese unravel the pieces, how not even our detectives are without secrets. As always, you can find more stories on the web at thevoice.dog, or find the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Voice of Dog.